Hello everybody, welcome back to Strange Days. My name is Kyle Peters from Common Ground Church in Seapoint, and I'm joined once again by Richard Lundy. Say hi, Rich. So good to be with you again. Hi, guys. So good to have Rich with us. And um, what you're going to hear now is a conversation that Rich and I had, and we split it over two episodes where we're looking at the idea of the social binary. And um, that is basically the idea that the whole of the world is divided into oppressed and oppressor groups. And you're going to hear more of that. And this week, we're just going to chat on uh, explaining what it is and looking at the ways that, um, that it is compatible with Christianity and the things that we can affirm. And then in the next episode, we'll get into some of the incompatibilities and how we can respond to that. So uh, over to my conversation now with, with Rich. Just a few disclaimers again up front. Um, a reminder, we, we're, we're pastors, um, not niche theological experts or, um, or, or sociological experts even. Um, and I'm freshly aware of the danger of coming across as smarter than you actually are. I was getting internet installed at my house the other day and uh, it just wasn't working. There, The guys were trying to get, you know, the router and everything was installed, but the, the internet was just not flowing. And after about four hours of phone conversations, uh, the guy just said, hey, just want to ask, you've got the cable in the right socket, right? And I said, ah, oh, no, I don't. And the guy's like, oh, I'm sorry. I just, I, I didn't ask earlier because you just sounded like you really know what you're talking about. And so I assumed there was no ways you hadn't got the first step right. And so I'm freshly aware that um, we are just very normal people trying to, trying to, trying to help yeah. um, people we love and care for. And so we're talking to people from our church, and if that's not you, we're so glad you're listening in. But mm. that's that's essentially who we are and where we're coming from. Yeah, and even as we have this conversation, we, we want to be mindful that it's it's quite easy when we focus on getting words right and terminology right that we get truth right and can easily leave love behind. And so our goal through this series is not to have clear definitions and clear things in order to avoid responsibility. Instead, we're saying let love and truth be combined, that we're better equipped to love the world, serve the world, uh, and to have ears that are more attuned to the pain and the suffering of people around us. Uh, so this, please, hear us loudly and clearly. This isn't an attempt to have such clear truth that we close our eyes to the pain of those around us. Uh, we also realize that as we've broken up this podcast series into different components, you might get to the end of this episode and go, I can't believe they didn't address issues A, B, and C. I encourage you to listen to the previous episode and to keep listening because in many ways, uh, what we're trying to do is you know, take one tire off the car at a time and pick it up and examine it, but ultimately it's one car of, of critical theory. So please uh, stick through if you get to the end of this and we didn't answer a question that you had, uh, listen through to the end of the series. And of course, if we didn't answer something by the end of that, you're welcome to, to ping us and send us a message. Yeah. And ask us to lean in or point you to resources that can perhaps answer that for you. I think that's such a good point, which I haven't even thought of. Feel free to, to mail, mail us questions. You can, if you don't know us personally, I'm sure you can find us on our Facebook page or something. So please, please do that. But now we're going to, we're going to chat around um, this big idea of the social binary and, you know, it's sort of being the first pillar um, in, in building, or the first tire, if I can use uh, Richard's great metaphor, the first tire in building this car here. Um, and the idea of us here is we just want to present it as, as clearly as we can. And so actually, we've got a quote from two of the leading um, critical theorists um, who will just literally explain it in their own words. So here's the big idea of the social binary. <clears throat> I quote, this is Sensoy and D'Angelo from their book, um, Is Everyone Really Equal? For every social group, there is an opposite group. The primary groups that we name here in their book are race, class, gender, sexuality, ability, status, ex or slash exceptionality, religion, and nationality. 
And then they go on later to say, oppression describes a set of policies, practices, traditions, norms, definitions, uh, explanations, or discourses which function to systematically exploit one group to the benefit of another social group. The group that benefits from this exploitation is termed the dominant group uh, or agent group, and the group that is exploited is termed the minoritized or target group. And sexism, racism, classism, ableism, heterosexism are specific forms of oppression. Now, you might just hear this and... um, you know, people are hearing this from all different places and perspectives. Um, and you might, as you're listening, say, oh, yeah, that 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 sounds clear. Or that specific one is definitely true. On other ones that they mentioned there, like other specific um, forms of oppression, whether it's sexism, classism, whatever, you might say, hang on, I'm not 100% convinced um, that that is true. That's fine. But this is the big idea, basically. Right. And kind of the more of the oppressed category boxes you tick, the more oppressed you are. Uh, let me let me run through now. I wish you could see the visual aid that we have, but uh, I'll have to describe it to you. And we'll, so, we'll put it in the show notes, definitely. Brilliant. So kind of in the category of race, the oppressor group is white and the oppressed group is black. In the category of sex, the oppressor group is male, the oppressed group is female. In the category of sexuality, the oppressor group is heterosexual and the oppressed groups are gay and lesbian and so on. Now, other sides of these axes or poles or binaries are, are, are other things that you may be familiar with, may not be familiar with in, in this kind of uh, explanation. There's upper class and working class, educated and illiterate, able-bodied and disabled, attractive and unattractive, able to have children and infertile, light-skinned and dark-skinned adults and the aged and so on and so on. Mm. And so Kimberly Crenshaw in the 80s added another layer to this kind of distinction of how people are put into groups and it's a term term called intersectionality. The thing is because we, we can hit multiple elements of those different categories of groups and we can't be understood along a single axis alone. So, Carl, you're not only male and you're not only white. Uh, and, and in some ways, an individual can be part of both an oppressor group and an oppressed group that will shape their particular experience. And uh, Neil Shenvey, when he t- talks to try and explain this, unpacks how in a women's march, we have people holding up a sign saying, you know, specifically aimed at women's rights, having white women, uh, sorry, a sign saying, hey, don't forget that white women voted for Trump. Uh, or another sign which said, feminism without intersexuality is just white supremacy. And what this is really underlying or underlining or pointing out is that an event aimed at women's rights or women's issues, we can't assume that white women and women of color will share the same agenda mm. because women of color are oppressed in a way that white women are not. Now, other things when you look at it and saying some areas may have progressed in saying they've hired some black men but didn't hire black women, etc., etc. So intersectionality says someone's experience is a layer of all of those different experiences on those different axes. And one of the things that we, we, we examine when we look at uh, critical theories, they're saying that an individual is the sum of the groups that they are in. In other words, you get your identity from being part of a group. And based on which group you're in, you're allowed to do some things and not allowed to do others. You may have heard this, you might have said it it yourself. Something like, you can't say that because you are dot, dot, dot. And often what you're saying in that dot, dot, dot is an indication of a particular group that person is from. Regardless of the individual, their intentions, their history, their background, saying, no, because you're part of that group, you are are not allowed to say that or do that. And and this kind of touches into our next episode, so I can't get into all of those details. But really it's saying you're you're the sum total of your group. You're not an individual. You're part of a larger group. 
And, and what's interesting is like, can you actually, it's a question, can you actually change those groups? So on some of those axes you can, it's completely binary. It's either on or off. It's either on this side or that side. Right. Other times it's a bit of a spectrum saying like from uh, upper class to working class and like, where am I in that? Mm. Uh, or where are you in that? Or where is that person on that? And so on and so on. And what we have to hold in mind when we are understanding critical theory is that the nature of the relationship between each side of the axes, between male and female, black and white, et cetera, et cetera, the nature of that relationship is defined by power, a power differential. And so everything gets interpreted through the lens of power. No interaction is therefore innocent. Let me, let me explain uh, using a small, hopefully uh, a, a kind of a day-to-day example that puts this into perspective. I was at the shops the other day doing, doing the weekly shop as we have been doing in lockdown and uh, I kind of get to the end of the aisle and I'm pushing the trolley and someone comes around the corner and you know when you come like uh, the person was of a different demographic to me and I had a chance to either let them go in front of me or I had to go in front of them. It was just a simple thing of like who does what here we look at each other and so on and so on. Now Critical theory would say you need to examine that interaction through the lens of what group I'm in and what group that person is in through the lens of power. And in many ways, it doesn't matter what happened in that incident. Whether I went ahead, it would be interpreted as saying, of course he went ahead of me because he is dot, 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 fill in the blank of my social group. Mm. And if I let that person through, they'd say, well, that's just patronizing because I'm part of this group. Mm. And so that interaction, which in some ways could be interpreted in, in the sense of courtesy or manners, is then suddenly laden with power and understood in that particular way. Now, I, I, I use that as a small incident because in many ways it, it wasn't uh, – I wouldn't call that oppression, um, and I wouldn't even call that microaggression, but it is something that we experience. And so when you layer on more emotions to that, more pain and more suffering to that, you can understand how sometimes people can talk past each other around, I see yeah. it this way, you see it that way, because the, the whole conversation is laden through the lens of power and groups. So good, Rich. And if you're hearing this now, and already this is an example of where you might be thinking, uh, you know, what is the nature of of, of this power and, and there seems to be more to the conversation here. Let's talk about microaggressions and, and interpretations of situations. All that stuff will be coming up more in the next couple of episodes. Um, like the next episode, we're going to be talking about um, the, 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 the real nature of the oppression that is often spoken about here, which is the, the, the idea of oppression through hegemonic power or through um, dominant ideology. And so that's going to come up next episode. Um, but this is basically just a high-level summary of, 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 how, of how critical theory uh, works and this idea of the social binary. And I think what is worth saying, which is why we're having the conversation, is um, this is very fresh in terms of being a framework, a dominant framework for seeing the world. But it's, it, it, it's growing rapidly. And I would say in most places, most people didn't think like this five, ten years ago. Even me as a student's ministry leader realized within three to four years of me being on campus doing that ministry, um, this worldview increasing more. And so it's just, it's just great to, to, to just get the, the high-level summary but recognize that it is, a, it is a growing way of seeing the world. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And as we even grapple with how quickly this has moved on, I kind of want to spend a little bit of time looking at the person, the life, the teaching of Jesus in this, because we recognize that tension between groups uh, in society is not a 21st century thing. It's the interpretation of it that, that that's new and right. that's different. So you know, let's transplant ourselves 2,000 years ago and look at how did Jesus live and minister and teach? What did he do? Because what we see in his life, and I mean, we could look in the early church as well, but just for the sake of brevity, we're just going to look at some of the Gospels. 
So picture this. In Jesus' first 12, right, we have Matthew or Levi. He's a tax collector. He's a representative of the imperial Roman occupiers. If you want a sampling or a representative of Rome in the, in the first 12, in the 12 disciples, you look to Matthew. And at the same time, we have Simon the Zealot. Now, this is a, a group of Jews who are actively and sometimes violently trying to overthrow Roman rule. If you picture by two opposite sides of an axis about Roman oppressors and uh, Jewish uh, kind of oppressed, both people finding unity or finding togetherness or finding something in common in the person of Jesus. It's an interesting thing. I'd love to have heard their political discussions. And I can imagine them yeah. wandering through the wilderness and all the different types of people following Jesus, holding up different signs. Remember, that person over there supports Roman. Oh, this person over here killed Roman soldiers, etc., etc. What about male-female axis? You know, all over the Gospels, we see Jesus uplifting the place and role of women, publicly recognizing their inherent value, seeing his own image in them. Whether it was a woman crying on his feet, weeping on his feet, or another one being accused of adultery, uh, or whether uh, the, you know, the people that Jesus chose to reveal himself as the risen Savior, the first people that saw Jesus risen was women. In a society of great oppression of women, Jesus perpetually undermined that status quo by elevating them. What about rich and poor on that axis? Well, we see in one book in Luke, he's, in, he's hanging out with Zacchaeus, right? A rich tax collector, and he's also hanging out with people who had to beg for a living. He didn't seem to favor one over the other. Very interesting. What about different classes? He died a poor man, and it was buried in a rich man's tomb. Hmm. What about Rome versus Jerusalem? Just come back to it again. He commends a Roman, faith, a Roman centurion's faith. There's different ethnicities that he engaged with. He, he hangs out with the highly religious and the highly irreligious. And this ticked people off. It was a fascinating thing. It confused because a Messiah in their mind was coming for one group of people. And of course, anybody on the other side of that axis, Jesus has come in opposition to them. Sure. But yet somehow, Jesus draws people to himself. He doesn't push people further into their groups. He actually draws them into himself. And so we see Jesus didn't only come for the earthly oppressed. He came also for the oppressor. He came for all of us. You see, his grace is needed by everyone. His forgiveness is needed by everyone. They all share his image. And at the same time, we experience life differently. We have different needs and different perspectives. But in him and only in him can true and deep unity be found. It's littered all over the Gospels that where Jesus went, he brought people together in him. Yeah, he didn't point. push them further apart. Rich, I'm loving what you're saying about um, about the unity, about Jesus coming for the oppressor and the oppressed, the male and female, you know, almost every, every access, the, the Roman uh, colonialist, basically, and the, the Jewish person who's been colonized. Um, <clears throat> obviously, there is a theme, and maybe this comes up later, but there is a theme in the Bibles of the God having a, uh, a special eye towards the oppressed. Um, and I don't know if there's another time to speak about this, but I thought I'd ask you now, yeah. how do you, how do we... How do we balance those? Because it, it, it is both of them are true. Jesus yes. came for both, and at the same time, he has a, a special heart for the vulnerable um, and a heart for the for the oppressed. Totally. I mean, all of you see Jesus speaking up on behalf of the poor. We never see him speaking up on behalf of the rich. So if we just pick one of those axes of of, of monetary thing, we see mm. him actually speaking. And it's tricky when you look at him saying, is he speaking against rich people? And it's not so much against, he's recognizing the difficulty rich people have of entering the kingdom because for them, their particular idol is their wealth and saying that's more important than a deep followership of Jesus. And so when we look at a scripture like Isaiah 117, God instructs his people, says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. 
So when I'm, when I'm talking about this, how Jesus brings the oppressor and the oppressed together in him, he's not saying ignore the needs of the oppressed. Yes. He's not saying ignore the needs of the oppressor. Their needs are different, of course. And in fact, the people of God marked by their fellowship in the God who is just, the one who reveals himself as the just God, what's going to come out in the life of a, of a faithful Christ follower is to seek out those who are suffering and do what they can do, what is within their power, within their strength, within their ability to ease the suffering of brothers and sisters. It's kind of littered all over scripture. So I totally. please, I appreciate you helping me shine a spotlight. I don't want to create this thing like Jesus didn't come to help people or, or, or help those who are oppressed. He's saying, no, 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 actually. Another thing like Zechariah 7 is, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor, and let none of them devise easel, e- easel, evil against another in your heart. So you picture that. It's like l- written into the very DNA of the new identity that people receive in following Christ is this concern for the poor. Consider that Jesus could have incarnated in any time or place in history. Mm. He could have incarnated in the hallways of power in the Roman Empire. And he could have then risen to become Caesar and through different means sought to bring about justice and peace and, 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 and that kind of thing. Right. Right? right. He could have. But where was he born? In a borrowed stable. <laughs> he was. He died naked, right? Not in the hallways of power, having yeah. to drink poison or in other Roman literature, right? Yeah. He said, "No, no." He chose the path of those who were suffering the most. And there's something significant in there that we we commune with a God who communed with the poor, the vulnerable, the suffering, the oppressed. It's that we cannot ignore that in the yeah. Christian faith. Yeah, that is so helpful, Rich. Thanks so much. And that, I mean, that basically leads us on to the next thing which we want to do is well look at this one thing of the social binary when it comes to critical theory and say well what in here can we affirm last week we spoke about um the need for discernment and discernment is not we can often think of discernment as um keeping a keeping one weary eye out for the for the the bad stuff but actually the flip side is true where can we find the good in what in the good the right the true the the lovely um and and draw that out and bring attention to it and and affirm it and so um just like you've been saying here uh the fact that the social binary and critical theory um, emphasizes the sinfulness of oppression is 100% true. <clears throat> that is literally, in many ways, as you say, the, the, one of the major emphases of Scripture and one of one of the sins that, that Scripture consistently highlights is this thing of oppression. Um, and you mentioned a, a bunch of passages there from the, from the Old Testament. Uh, you can also think of stuff from the New Testament, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, James 5, the wages of the laborer who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord. There's a sense where, where <clears throat> there's, a, there's a right thing for the voices of the oppressed. Excuse my, my throat here. <clears throat> it's a right thing for the voices of the oppressed to be heard. That's a that's a beautiful thing in mm. God's sight. Um, I mean, Neil Shenvey reckons this is the greatest strength of critical theory. Yeah. Is highlighting the fact that oppression is real and ongoing in in today's society. Just in, in today's society, and what it highlights is the fact that um, power does exist. So we were we were talking about that. These these axes that we're talking about here are axes of power. Um, it's 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 oppression and oppressed on that on that axis of power and power does exist and some people do use power to oppress others and i think in many ways that's part of the biblical definition of oppression yeah it's those who are vulnerable who don't have power being bullied and picked on and oppressed and held down um, and exploited mm. by those who are able to do that and have the yeah. power to do that and we'll chat more about that next week when we come to chat specifically around uh, hegemonic power and how how that's viewed by critical theorists in terms of oppression. Um, 
But this is huge. And I mean, Andrew Wilson brought this up the other day when he was chatting to a bunch of the common ground leaders around this stuff. Um, but critical theory has has come out of, of the Western world in many ways, which has had its moral imagination shaped by the gospel for right. for millennia. You know, that's, that, that's what the gospel does. The gospel takes root in a culture and eventually starts to change this, the, the social fabric and the way people see things. And so it totally makes sense that that um, out of this, you know, um, the Western world, um, uh, a, a rightful cry and a rightful heart that oppression is wrong is is coming to the surface, yeah. and which is a, another beautiful thing to um, to to see and note. And as we say, Christianity and critical theorists will differ on the exact nature of oppression, um, everything that falls under <clears throat> everything that falls under that banner. Um, but as Christ follows, we are meant to be um, innocent of injustice yeah. and working towards um uh you know bringing about justice and mm. avoiding things like partiality and not having a part to play in oppressing others so yeah it's huge i mean i don't know if you've got anything else to, to say on that particular point yeah i, I think it, it's what what this helps us shine a light on and when you think of intersectionality as well layering on that is uh as a white male i don't know what uh, it's like to be uh black female right i don't and uh, what what this helps me understand is I need to be listening with extra care and concern when other people who are very different to me are sharing their experiences. Of course, I, have, I must have it with people who are very similar to me too. But so often we can discount the pain of others, the suffering of others, because they're just so different to us. And this helps bring it kind of what compassion level, what's my compassion level going on when I'm hearing somebody right. else crying out. So that's the that's the first thing we we totally want to affirm. Oppression is is real, and um, and Christians are called to move towards it. Um, the, the second thing that, that that this social binary graph, picture, dynamic, whatever you want to call it, um, gets, gets right is it often focuses on the fact that um, there are systems and structures and norms. And this will come up again in, 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 um, in the next episode on hegemonic power. But um, critical theory does focus on, on, on groups rather than individuals. But it shows how laws and, and institutions can, in a sense, promote uh, partiality and promote oppression in various ways and I mean if you go just think literally think about the last century we've got the Holocaust in Nazi Germany we've got um, apartheid here in South Africa like we it's, it's in, in, a, in a sad way we're the poster child mm. as, as a nation for this um, you had mentioned previously the sort of the caste system in India and things mm. like that and and that is very very real and um, here, let me just quote Shenvey quickly, Neil Shenvey. Clearly, these horrors shouldn't be exclusively understood as individual acts of immorality. Immorality was codified and written into law. The law then informed and shaped human moral institutions as it always does. Human beings were individually morally responsible for their actions, but laws and institutions and systems dramatically amplified and encouraged human wickedness. And I think... This is huge because often when we come to discuss things like racism, we often get polarized in two extremes. Well, there's either racism is either individual, for example, or oppression is either individual or it's systemic. And those mm. those two things often pull apart as if it's a it's a either or, yeah. whereas it's it's a both and and they both feed into each other. Yeah. Yeah. And living in a system or an environment where it makes it natural and easy uh, to to oppress others is yeah. what really what you're saying. It's yeah. like I. I do need to give into that personally and, and say, yes, I'm participating in that. But there's some environments where it's so easy to do that. And Christians should be part of uh, undermining, dismantling systems uh, that make it easy for people to sin <laughs> and in yeah, this particular way and bring great, oppression to others. 
And the third thing that that we we want to affirm out of what we've been sharing so far is that privilege is real in many ways. Uh, and I know we're going to pick this up in, in coming episodes. So I'm not going to try and unpack it entirely. But what do I mean by privilege in this context? And it is a loaded word. And for some of you listening to that, you might already want to switch off. But let me explain it in a way that seems to make the most sense of the, of the different narratives around it. That privilege, uh, many people think it's earning immediate and tangible benefits. And what I mean by earning, it's like it's given to them. And someone, it's unearned immediate and tangible benefits. But really, it's more helpful to look at privilege as being the absence of inconvenience or the absence of impediment. And so because of that, when you don't have it, or sorry, when you do have it, you don't even notice it because that's normal. Yes. And when you don't have it, it becomes obvious. Now, choosing one of the axes to, to demonstrate this in terms of able-bodied or, or not able-bodied is uh, I don't know what it's like to have impaired sight. Look, I have reading glasses, but that's more to do with my age than any kind of serious impediment in my life. But a few years ago, I had someone in my life group who's blind. And I learned more and more how many barriers there are for him in various spaces of life. And I just didn't know. I was ignorant. And he, he faces impediments through no fault of his own. He didn't contribute towards them, but he, has, he faces life in a very different way to what I face life. Now, there's things that he has to go through from how things are built to how information is shared to even how we communicate with each other. A WhatsApp doesn't work, Right. I didn't have a reference point for that until he shared and I understood his experience of life. That His life is simply harder than mine. Now, I have the privilege of sight. In other words, I have the absence of the barriers that he has. Yeah. Now, recognizing my privilege of sight doesn't, make, doesn't mean that the rest of my life is easy. It's not a disclaimer saying I have the privilege of sight, therefore everything else in my life is, is plain sailing. No, no, it's not saying that. But it invites me to be a better brother and a friend. So when I recognize I have the privilege of sight, what can I do for my brother and friend to help him participate and contribute in our life group, which is the context of the relationship that we, that mm. we have. And also what I, I have to say is that recognizing my privilege doesn't make him not blind. Right. If that makes sense. It, yeah. doesn't, it doesn't actually solve the core issue of him being blind. But what it, what it helped me to do was realize I have a part to play in using what the privilege of sight that I have to help him fully participate and contribute in our life group and do what I can do to remove the barriers and the impediments that he faces through no choice of his own. And, and so this concept of privilege and, and stating that privilege is real, it helps me be more sensitive to the experience of brothers and sisters who are experiencing, uh, to use this language, experiencing a different Cape Town to me who perhaps experience church differently to me and so on. They experience what, what it's like to go through a shopping center. I experience it differently to them. So intersectionality and these different factors help me listen more carefully, more sensitively, and be more aware of what I can do to be part of seeing their full participation and contribution and removing the barriers that I can move for them or with them. Thanks again for listening to this episode. Next week, we're going to continue talking about this first tenet of critical theory, the social binary, and we're going to look at the incompatibilities this time with Christianity and then how we can think through uh, living our lives and applying the Bible and the gospel to ourselves in light of this. So thanks so much for joining us, and you can pick up the conversation with us next time. Cheers. Cheers.